In fact, most of the hostages and POWs I've seen and treated have not had serious mental health problems. They've had a lot of post-traumatic growth. So they've appreciated life in a different way. They've kind of had ongoing relations with their family on an emotional level when they were held by themselves. And they've appreciated life um, uh, much, much more. Their value structure has changed. You have found the Thinking Mind podcast. Today, I'm happy to bring you this pre-pandemic conversation with Dr. Walter Buzatil. Dr. Buzatil is currently the medical director of Combat Stress, which is an organization that was specifically set up to deal with mental health problems of military veterans. And he's also the chairman of the United Kingdom Trauma Group and a board member of the United Kingdom Psychological Trauma Society. After graduating from his medical training in Manchester, he spent a lot of time in the Air Force and was involved in the retrieval and the rehabilitation of British hostages in the Beirut hostage crisis, as well as veterans from the first Gulf War. And then later in his career, he set up and led a service to treat post-traumatic stress uh, in survivors of sexual abuse, and then later set up another service, a psychological trauma service for women suffering from complex post-traumatic stress, as well as borderline personality disorder. So we had a really fascinating conversation uh, all about how he came over to the UK from Malta by himself in the 80s to do his medical training, his time in the Air Force and dealing with the complexities of trauma in both veterans and civilian populations. We talked a little bit about how the military can give structure and a sense of belonging to people's lives and many other topics. I hope you enjoy. I thought maybe we could start talking a little bit about combat stress. Sure. And what you guys do, maybe a bit of the history about it. And okay. What your role is. Yeah, so Combat Stress is a charity that looks after veterans with mental health uh, problems. And it was actually started off in 1919. So we're in our centenary year. And the reason why Combat Stress came about as a charity was that after the First World War, there were about 5,000 veterans who were locked up in asylums. And many wives and good women and daughters felt that this was wrong and that the state should look after them properly. So uh, they linked into the suffragette movement and they also then uh, had uh, backing from royalty at that time and they set up a series of homes uh, basically to give respite care but some of these homes actually were residential in terms of long-term residential for for veterans who really couldn't do very much for themselves. So they, they set up mainly a kind of uh, uh, therapeutic milieu with uh, basic uh, craft. So, uh, you know, there were periods at combat stress where people did basket weaving, would you believe, and had farms, had pig farms and planted various crops. Um, uh, and then periodically, as the wars kind of came and went, um, uh, combat stress ramped up its intervention. So there's always been a kind of mental health element to combat stress. It was called the... Uh, uh, service and ex-service mental welfare society. So it was about mental health and welfare. It's quite telling, isn't it, that 
it seems the state, both in the UK and from what I can tell in the States, um, they always seem to come up short when it comes to looking after their veterans once they've come back from a conflict situation, especially in the realm of mental health. Yes, I mean, certainly this country really has lagged behind. I mean, I would say that in the States, there's the Veterans Association, which was set up after Vietnam. And Vietnam, if you like, was a big turning point for veterans' mental health in America in that uh, many of the veterans went and campaigned even against the war, but certainly a lot of the reason was that there was no care at all for them. So they were a very angry bunch. Um, and the same thing happened actually in Australia. And Australia sent 60,000 uh, soldiers to Vietnam. And when they came back, Second World War veterans uh, uh, told them they weren't real veterans because they hadn't fought in a real war. In fact, they were the point uh, regiments for the uh, Americans and they, they, they had a lot of casualties, the, the Australians. And when they marched through uh, Sydney, they were pelted with rotten eggs and tomatoes. So the government then suddenly woke up and uh, took things very seriously. And they, they did set up one of the best, uh, if you like, or the best mental health services for veterans. And you know, we, we've had a long-standing relationship with uh, the veteran services in Australia, but also uh, with other veteran services across the world. Now, now in Britain, um, uh, it, it's reasonable to say that actually uh, the early part of, uh, of the 2000s, um, uh, the, uh, the British NHS wasn't really that interested in veterans and there was no real policy for veterans other than, and certainly I was told to my face in 2007, when I was appointed medical director here, so that's only 12 and a half years ago, that veterans were just like any other uniformed service, they went special, and that they'd get treated in a bog-standard NHS service. And why do you think that was the case? Well, I think, um, uh, certainly I was told this by one of the most senior doctors in the NHS, I think they didn't appreciate and people didn't really understand what serving in the military and particularly serving in combat entails. I mean, I served for 16 years in uh, in the military. I joined as a medical student. I trained then as a general practitioner doing general duties, uh, so a general duties medical officer. And then I was lucky enough to retrain in psychiatry. So uh, in effect, when you join the military, you give away all your life. You're, you're told where to be and you're, you're, uh, you're given a uniform and you have to conform to a hierarchy. Mm. And uh, if you're married, if you're allowed to get married, so I had to ask permission from the permission. from the station commander to get married if you're a certain age if you're young um uh, then your wife and children are subjected to the same total institution which we understand through our psychiatric training you know it's all goffman 1961 and you know if you need something you'll ask your sergeant if uh, you're uh, you're looking after property there'll be somebody to to help you uh, and 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 really your life is totally dominated by being efficient and being able to run things properly. So you, your culture changes uh, mm. in the military. It, it is a total institution. It's a completely different way of life. It is, it is a, a very organized way of life. And, and I think it's really great because, you know, I was a, a, a Maltese person by myself here in the UK studying medicine. And uh, I found a new family. So I, I got attached, very attached. And we will understand this through attachment theory. I got attached into the military. And many people... Mm who have a primary family that's disrupted or maybe they've been adopted or abused or some adverse things have happened um, in their childhood, 
they they will seek to join the military and and they do do have uh, uh, very strong attachments and find it then extremely difficult uh, when they come to leave what were the reasons that you left malta at such a young age to go to the uk so so what happened to me in um, 1977 i finished my a levels and the maltese medical uh, school had a degree that started every two years and i was waiting for the course to start i i'd passed reasonably well and uh, i would have definitely got a place and unfortunately we had this problem with don mintoff and the doctors and the doctors went on strike i see and uh, effectively the medical school closed because and don mintoff was the prime minister of malta at the time that's right he was prime minister at the time and uh, i hadn't applied to go to medical school in in malta but it, it was intended that i would so uh, a friend of mine uh, who also wanted to become a doctor got an application form for the uk and he said that he would apply and i said well there's no way i'll ever apply to leave malta I, i love malta too much and he said look i've filled yours in and will you sign it and i said okay i'll sign it but uh, i'm certainly not leaving and then uh, <clears throat> there was one university in manchester that accepted me um uh, and i told my dad well you know i could either become a footballer or work in a bank or as go to manchester um and become a doctor and i i know you can't afford it and he said no no i'll afford it as long as you go i said well i'll go and have a try so it was all kind of a bit of a mistake my friend <laughs> didn't get in but he got in the year after me and he went to liverpool so he's a doctor now too yeah so it must have been quite isolating to be in the uk by oneself yeah i think at 18 i didn't think i was that young so you know i i was fairly resilient uh, i was certainly keen on sports and i made lots of friends but uh, i think then what happened was that my dad had a heart attack when i was in my beginning of my third year and i thought well i think if anything really serious happens like he dies then i'll have to give up uh, medical school so i looked around and i found out that i could get a commission with the military and i was quite interested in joining the military uh, certainly the air force attracted me more than uh, the navy or the army so i applied and then i eventually got a post mm-hmm. uh, as a medical student um uh, with with the raf mm-hmm. and like you said it gave you that sense of structure and family yes it did and yeah. helps on feel a bit at home in an alien environment in a it way. it did to to a large extent but you know as a medical student you behave like a medical student so you know i never cut my hair i was uh pretty much looking like a student whenever i went to university escadron uh the uh, commander said to me well you know you better get a haircut and i said well you're not going to deploy me or anything so i'll continue to be a student quite rebellious so it was quite uh, quite interesting anyway yes uh-huh. were you ever deployed in the air force well in the air force i served first of all at RAF Waddington which is in Lincolnshire and i was one of the last doctors to uh if you like see the vulcan uh effectively the vulcan was a big bomber aeroplane that used to if you like fly over malta when i was a boy uh, and it was really interesting to 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 be on uh, as a as a squadron doctor one of the last doctors ever to serve and and then uh, during that first year i got deployed to the falklands after the war so this was 1984 and that was really interesting um uh, and still kind of quite a a, a dangerous uh, zone while i was there and then in that year as well i went to ethiopia on the on the famine relief operation that was really interesting too and then at the end of that year i got posted to germany where i spent uh 2 years 
plus on a flying station with fast jets, which was really exciting. And then for 18 months, I completed my uh, general practice vocational training in uh, at RAF Hospital Wegberg, which is now bulldozed. Uh, and then eventually I came back to the UK in 1989, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. So in those places, were you doing mostly general practice rather yes, than psychiatry? That's right. I was doing general practice. And, and it, was, it was interesting because uh, part of it was occupational health. So, you know, I, I was a squadron doctor. I had to make sure the pilots, for example, went tall enough that they didn't fit in the cockpit. I had to be sure that they were kind of physically fit. So uh, that was really interesting. And th- and then, of course, we had the families there. So I think the population was around seven and a half uh, to 8,000 uh, people on camp, uh, including families and children. And, and so it was a thriving uh, primary care facility with an occupational health uh, bent. And, and, you know, you could be sent on... Uh, um, uh, if you like, exercise training with the squadron. So it was great fun. It was it was really quite good. Mm-hmm. Did you notice any particular psychological problems which were quite common in these pilots and their families? Yes, I did. I think there were two things. First of all, when the pilots deployed or the squadrons went, the families were kind of left behind, and the and the wife or you know usually took over what the uh, normally the wife and husband used to do together. So things like paying the bills, buying a car. Um, uh, making big decisions uh, would have been done by by the wife. And, you know, we can see that uh, today, even in myself, because I, I mean, I, I was used to uh, going away quite often. So today my wife still buys me a car and tells me I need to sign this for the bank or whatever. So, you know, that, that has remained part of the problem. So there, there has been a kind of intermittent husband uh, syndrome. In fact, it's a syndrome described in uh, um, uh, not only people serving in the military and submariners' wives, but also in uh, oil rig workers' wives. This was described in the 60s. And the, the syndrome, intermittent husband syndrome, uh, comprises three features. One is anxiety. Uh, the second one is depression. And the third, of course, is sexual difficulties. And, of course, it's only the wife who suffers, which is probably not true. Um, uh, so, yes, so that was one of the one of the areas. The other area was the that, you know, fast jet pilots are very macho. Uh, it's very manly. They were very young. I mean, there were people in the very early 20s flying million-pound aeroplanes, and they were extremely uh, well-trained. But uh, they they really didn't want to confess to any kind mm. of stress problems. Emotional difficulties. Emotional difficulties, no. But as, as a squadron doc, I found that uh, if you were in with them, they would tell you about them. So as, as a GP, I felt I did more good for air crew than perhaps I did as a consultant psychiatrist, which will come on later, um, uh, because eventually in my time in the Air Force, I was a uh, community psychiatrist, which served about six or seven fast jet flying stations. So it, it was really interesting to revisit my experience with fast jet pilots. Mm. Yeah, And I imagine the kind of trauma that is experienced by your average sort of pilot is very different from the kind of trauma that would be experienced by a soldier on the ground. Yes, I think serving um, uh, in the Air Force, we kind of, we, we had an RAF regiment. I mean, the RAF regiment... Uh, was designed or is designed to protect um, uh, military airfields. That's their primary role. And, of course, we did have training accidents. So, you know, in peacetime, that would be the primary reason why people 
would be subjected to traumatic stress or even car crashes because you've got lots of macho young men who drink a bit more than is good for them because there's an alcohol culture in the military and who take risks. So uh, those are the primary traumas. But, you know, for air crew, it was going to be something like uh, an ejection, uh, an emergency ejection or or a crash. And uh, unfortunately, those things do happen. Um, uh, I mean, it was interesting uh, while I was in the Falklands, I was a squadron doctor to only four Harriers. Uh, These were one squadron Harriers. And uh, one of my uh, pilot friends, by then, you know, you, you're integrated in the squadron, uh, had a, had an accident. He, he flew his aeroplane into a giant petrel, which is a, a bird that's bigger than an albatross. And he had to eject. And, you know, we were out there, my, myself and various medics, looking for him in, in the, in the sea, really. He, we were driving around. There were speedboats everywhere. And, and then because the Falklands was such as it was in, uh, I think 1984, I ended up operating or assisting in the operation at the, if you like, MASH hospital we had, which was very ad hoc, and then arranging his uh, medical evacuation back to the UK. So things things did happen, and they were, if you like, dangerous. I mean, a military environment is dangerous. We we you know practice in in real uh, in re- a real environment, um, and and accidents happen. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever find, um, did you ever encounter any pilots who were traumatized by for using their weapons? So, for example, launching a missile, well, actually trauma from accomplishing their mission? Well, I think, I think we kind of need to talk a little bit about uh, what happened then uh, during the Gulf War, yeah. the first Gulf War. So I've completed my training in general practice and, and really my time was up in the Air Force and I was offered... Uh, a more senior role in general practice. And I said, look, I, I want to turn this down because I want to become a psychiatrist. And would you train me? And eventually they said yes. And I went to a place called RAF Hospital Rawton, which uh, uh, was near uh, Swindon in Wiltshire. Uh, the hospital, unfortunately, now is bulldozed. But we had a a very good training system uh, at, at RAF Hospital Rawton. So that was the training center for RAF psychiatry. In all, during the Cold War, so we're still in the Cold War, 1989-ish, um, uh, we had something like 17 senior psychiatrists and, you know, several juniors, six or seven juniors, and I was lucky enough to get a place. And the first thing that my boss said to me is, he said, look, Walter, I need you to look at this file and I want you to research what might happen to these people. So the file was about the Beirut hostages, so Terry Waite and John McCarthy and Jackie Mann. And uh, the, 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 the thing that we, we were thinking about is that if they were ever released, we would kind of retrieve them and then see what the matter perhaps was with them and, and if there was a problem, uh, treat it. So my boss then, uh, who was a wing commander, Gordon Turnbull, his professor Turnbull now, uh, was very much into uh, traumatic stress disorders. But the rest of psychiatry in the Air Force was not into traumatic stress. It, it was really something new coming in in the late 80s. The Navy had experience after the Falklands War of 1982 that set up a, a training uh, center which did rehabilitation for mostly naval personnel and Marines mm-hmm. who'd fought in the Falklands. But the RAF uh, eventually got a lot more experience uh, in about 1991 with the Gulf War, first Gulf War. So, so really, before the Gulf War, 
happened, uh, I was doing all this kind of reading about uh, traumatic stress, torture, incarceration, solitary confinement, um, uh, being taken hostage, the, the impact of that, and then the impact of coming home. Uh, so I, le- I read a lot of papers about prisons of war uh, and then uh, uh, people who expected them to be dead, so their family in theory might go through a whole anticipatory grief reaction. And if that grief completes, then uh, usually what would happen is that, that that person coming back would have great difficulty reintegrating into the family. So so I did all that reading. And then we had, I think Gulf War I came before the hostages. And, and my role then was to set up rehab services for people coming back from the war. My boss, Gordon Turnbull, was sent off to the war because I was junior my war role was back in the UK. I was joined by a retired consultant, John Rollins, who's now deceased. He used to be in the Air Force, and he had set up the Navy psychiatric services following uh, the Falklands War, so the, the PTSD rehab service. So we set up, we set up a, a brief intervention, lasted about two weeks. It comprised three main uh, ingredients. The first was psychoeducation in a group. The second was uh, skills training in a group. And the third, at that time, we did trauma-focused therapy in a group. We did exposure in a group, and we had a group therapist to do that. And and that worked extremely well, not forgetting that many of these people had been traumatized uh, relatively briefly because the first Gulf War lasted, was was fairly brief. But as part of that, we also had pilots who came back um, uh, into that program. And... uh, the aim was, you know, to keep the principles that were set out in the First World War of Pi B. So Pi means proximity, uh, uh, intensity and, and brevity with the expectancy um, uh, that people go back. So uh, back to fight. So so the, the philosophy was that this was going to be a brief intervention. And if you were needed back on active service, you would go back and and for this program, we negotiated with Surgeon General that people would not be medically downgraded if they came to the program, but they would be if they failed it. And and nobody failed uh, to go back, as it were, or to go back to a war role if they were required. And the pilots did go back. So they were aeromedded back. They had been on bombing runs. They found it difficult. They hadn't managed, if you like, to, to uh, get over the... Uh, the impact of of having to fly very very low. It was very dangerous flying, mm-hmm. um, uh, and of course they they then went back and they functioned extremely well and they went back on on full operations and, and we didn't have any long term fallout. Mm-hmm. Do Do you think they were prepared for what they were actually? set out to do for causing that those kinds of levels of destruction i think so i think you know when you when you think about how how air operations were kind of performed in the 90s early 90s you'd kind of uh, fire your bomb uh, like a slingshot so you you would release it two miles away from the from the from the place you wanted to drop it on so and and not many aircraft had all this kind of intensive imagery where you could tell exactly where it was falling. So to be honest with you, I think a lot of the issue was not about dropping things because they were extremely well trained for that. I think a lot of the issue was about receiving AAA, which was uh, the ACAC, as it were, uh, and that was uh, very sporadic but very accurate as well in some bomb runs. Yeah. And what was it like working with... Um, the hostages from the Beirut hostage crisis. Yeah, I mean, that was quite interesting. I mean, uh, 
we uh, we had a team, so we had a team that would actually go out and retrieve them, which included a a physician. Uh, the the main thing about uh, uh, being a hostage is certainly in these circumstances they were held hostage for many years. Uh, Terry Waite, for example, in his book would say he was chained to a radiator for four years. We were worried about heavy metals in water and uh, and uh, you know signs of starvation and vitamin deficiency and head injuries because of torture. So, you know, we took a physician with us to to retrieve them. And there was a small psychiatric contingent um, uh, with a consultant psychiatrist, perhaps a junior psychiatrist as well, uh, a couple of nurses. Um, and, and the aim was to just bring them back to the UK and then have a private reintegration within their family. So we'd met all the families before. I I was involved in all three, but not at the same degree. So um, uh, I wasn't necessarily always on the retrieval party or on the rehab party on the way back. So we kind of mixed and matched. Um, uh, just as an anecdote, I, I was at, uh, for one of them, I was at uh, a crammer for the MRC Psych Part 2 exam. Uh, if you're a student, uh, psychiatric trainee listening to this, and uh, I told my boss, if, if there's another hostage that's released, I want to go. Uh, I want to be part of the retrieval. And he honoured that. He sent a... Uh, a policeman who interrupted the lecture and said, uh, Walter was here to come with us now. And I was whisked away in a police car. And then it must have felt quite special. It was quite interesting because the MRC psych exam was 10 days away. And we expected this was Terry Waite. We expected Terry Waite to come out uh, the day after we landed in Cyprus. So we'd land in Cyprus and wait for the uh, for intelligence effectively to tell us when he was going to be released and then go over to uh, Syria to uh, to retrieve uh, the hostage and and what happened in fact is we waited ten days and I just got back for my exam and then I did the exam and passed which was lucky. Good job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I suppose there's a limit to how much you can talk about this, but what's what what was it like for the hostages that were released? Do you think? Yeah, I think look they they've described quite a lot in their books and I would really encourage people to read their books because you know the theory of uh, having you know being taken hostage and ending up, for example, for many years or being taken prisoner of war and certainly a combat stress. I've met a lot of POWs um, uh, over the years, you know, certainly from the Korean Korean War, for example. And and then uh, while I was still uh, a junior in, in the Air Force, we assessed a lot of Far Eastern prisoners of war. These were Second World War veterans held in Japanese uh, POW or concentration camps, really is what they were. And and really what struck me was that although the theory was that we expected PTSD, depression, uh, a lot of physical illness, you know, with, for example, the Far Eastern prisons of war uh, had a lot of parasites and tropical disease still, still, still active. Uh, we also expected their personality would change for the, for, from a negative point of view. They'd be very angry and apathetic. Uh, we, we can talk about an apathy syndrome. And psychosis as well, you know, if you're held in solitary confinement for more than three days, you almost guarantee that you'll start hallucinating. So that's what we expected. In fact, most of the hostages and POWs I've seen and treated have not had serious mental health problems. They've had a lot of post-traumatic growth. So they've appreciated life in a different way. They've kind of had ongoing relations with their family on an emotional level when they were held by themselves and they've appreciated life um, uh, much, much more. Their value structure has changed. So 
actually, did we see a lot of mental illness? The answer is we did not. I think more importantly is that the uh, the intervention, uh, which we called at the time psychological debriefing, which is now discredited as an intervention, and we can talk about that perhaps another time, um, uh, but that was all about getting the hostage to talk a bit about what happened and their emotions, and then to integrate the family. So we did a lot of family work, and there was preparation with the families before the hostages were released. And the aim was that we we needed to be sure that the concept of anticipatory grief, which I kind of talked about a, a little before, was was dealt with. So anticipatory grief was described by Lindemann in 1944, so it's not a new thing. And and what it's about is that if somebody is sent off to war or there's news that they've been captured as a, 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 well, first missing in action, and then maybe it's known they're a POW, is that the family and usually the wife uh, takes over all the operations within the family. And uh, it could be if there's no news about that individual for many, many months, is that they will they will start to grieve. And even some, some families, some wives would grieve the minute the husband goes to war, not expect him to come back, better prepare myself. And they go through the whole grieving process. And they go through the whole grieving process. So when he does come back, then it's a real effort. And it's sometimes impossible for that uh, person, the husband, to be reintegrated into the family. Would there be like an unconscious resistance within the family? Absolutely. There'd be a dynamic in the family that's very difficult to explain. And the, the individual coming back would feel left out. And, and, you know, maybe the wife would make certain decisions that would make the marriage irretrievable. So she'd go and have affairs or else she wouldn't care much about the husband and wouldn't care maybe about herself. So, you know, in, in addition to that process, there are kind of mental health issues with the wife. And and then, uh, of course, the, the, there is impact on the children as well. So the children will cope as well as the wife does. And that would kind of mean that the wife might get depressed, properly, formally depressed, have anxiety problems or alcohol problems, smoke too much, or else play the field, as it were, you know, and have other relationships. Yeah. The other thing, the other idea I've come across relating to soldiers coming back from war is the idea that often these young soldiers, the, their experience in combat is the most thrilling, mm-hmm. exciting, engaging sure. part of their life. Yes. And they experience a lot of solidarity with the soldiers that they're with. Sure. And so when they return to civilian life, it actually feels like a dumbed-down version of reality. Yeah. And that this is part of the problem that these soldiers face when it comes to reintegrating in society. I think the the book that's been written about this is mm-hmm. called Tribe sure. by Sebastian younger right yeah he made a documentary about afghanistan and iraq right yes i think this is very important the soldiers will say combat soldiers will say uh, it's the rush it's the rush and they they do get a rush i mean there's a lot of kind of literature on this um uh, in that they you know you'd think well these are people fighting for queen and country they're not they're fighting for their mates, really, for themselves. And the way they're trained is, certainly in the British military, is you fight in very small groups of maybe six, you know each other extremely well. Your training will weed out the weakest link. The weakest link is not required because that's the weakest link that will get you killed. So these are very closely bonded people. As we said a bit before about culture, they have the same mentality, the same culture, and the same aim. And uh, they will get a high um, uh, some of them certainly will say, when when they're in combat. Uh, 
Um, and it can be extremely difficult to explain to other people who've not actually been in that situation. And, and also, you know, when they do come back, they will need to feel uh, alive. So combat is really not good for you. It does cause mental health issues. At the very least, it will cause you to be irritable and angry. Not that you'll have a mental health uh, diagnosis, but for some, um, uh, it, it will start to have a, a mental health effect. At the least would be perhaps an adjustment disorder. Uh, but we know from studies done uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, veterans, which were perhaps for the first time studied properly in a British population, all these studies are on the King's website. That's the King's Center for Military Health Research, KCMHR. Uh, Google and have a look. Um, you know, combat is associated with higher rates of depression, common mental disorder, anxiety, alcohol problems, and, you know, for some post-traumatic stress as well, and also aggression and violence, domestic violence included. So um, uh, not everybody's affected. I mean, it's always uh, important to kind of look at the uh, causes of uh, these mental health problems. So, you know, things about uh, lack of support before, during and after is more likely to cause you post-traumatic stress and other disorders. Um, uh, big life events when you come back, a year John from your missus perhaps as well, that doesn't help. And then the dose-response effect. So the more you're exposed and the more horrific it is, the more personal it is, perhaps you identify with a dead body, looks like my mum or something like that, then the more likely it is you, you will become mentally unwell. Yeah, because if you go back to older conflicts, like as far as I'm aware, World War One was the first one where some kind of post-combat neuroses was described. And if you watch videos of patients uh, experiencing that, it seems to be a very different phenomenon from the PTSD which we think about today. Well, actually, you know, if we read the Cunius Papyrus of 1200 BC, uh, that is that documents what happened to Egyptian soldiers after combat. Their symptoms are fairly similar to symptoms of modern day uh, soldiers. So, uh, you know, when we look at the history of, of post-traumatic stress, it's been called many, many names. So, you know, Swiss mercenaries in the, I don't know, maybe 13th, 14th century, uh, you know, they, they were described as having um, uh, various symptoms um, uh, that were described as, as nostalgia. That, that kind of recurred in the American Civil War. Uh, many, many soldiers towards the end of the war, certainly on the Confederate uh, side, um, uh, uh, they deserted. When the war isn't going well, you get higher casualty rates of mental health problems. So it, it's fairly well documented. And then Shakespeare... Um, uh, in uh, King Henry IV, um, uh, there's a description there from uh, Lady Percy uh, related to, to Hotspur, her husband, who's been in iron wars, who cries out in his sleep, who's sweating all the time when he's asleep. Mm -hmm. And then we have kind of descriptions with Samuel Pepys, the Great Fire of London, how that affected him and people, which are symptoms of post-traumatic stress. So there's there's quite a lot. Charles Dickens, Staplehurst uh, uh railway crash in 1865 and he had to lay there with dead bodies for two hours so it's it's fairly stereotypical so there is a stereotype people do kind of uh, think well actually they were quite different uh, disorderly action of the heart was described uh, around the uh, even in the first world war that was kind of a bit different to uh, shell shock where that was kind of mainly neurological symptoms people talked about shell shock as being caused by uh, shaking to the base of the brain, and that really is an old 
an old term because that's what Victorian doctors thought was happening uh, because, of course, in Victorian times, for the first time they had railways and for the first time they had rail crashes and people who appeared to be kind of fairly whose bodies appear to be intact after these rail crashes, but they died, had post-mortem bleeding towards the base of the brain. So when shell shock came along, people thought actually sending off shells and receiving shells could give you shell shock and there must be a bleed towards the base of the brain. So that's an organic condition. Whereas other people said, no, 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 it's about poor morals and these people are cowards, let's shoot them. And that's what happened to 267, I think, in the British military and other in the First World War. And uh, and then, uh, you know, other people said, no, this is a psychological problem. And Freud was kind of very uh, interested in uh, in uh, trauma. And, and people then started to adopt his theories. And, you know, if you look at Craig Roth, Lockhart and, and Rivers and what he did, he was perhaps the only psychiatrist um, uh, or psychologist, uh, I think he was a psychiatrist, who who actually got people to talk about what happened. And, and when we look at modern treatment for post-traumatic stress, it's about telling the story in a safe environment and reliving what happened in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, historically, in the First World War, they didn't do much of that. Um, uh, so that, that was really quite important, that uh, people then started to identify this as a psychological illness. But then, of course, we have all this learning and forgetting and relearning. As I said, you know, the Air Force had 17 uniformed senior psychiatrists during the Cold War, and now it's got maybe three psychiatrists, and, you know, a lot of expertise has gone. I'm not saying they're not expert, but there aren't enough, perhaps, of them. Um, uh, after the First World War in 1922, there was a whole kind of movement to discredit the concept of shell shock, and it was discredited. It was a national and thing. What do you think was the motivation for that? I think a lot of the motivation was, uh, you know, people uh, trying to, if you like, uh, deny there was a, a national issue with shell shock, and uh, to deny I, that war is a serious to deny issue. war is a serious issue, and it, and it costs money to pay war pensions. I mean, it costs a lot of money. Um, uh, to, to acknowledge actually somebody can't work because of, because of, uh, uh, uh an injury that we've caused him or her to suffer yeah. for the, for the country. So there's a reluctance yeah. to admit some of the very serious adverse, uh, consequences yes. of sort of government level policy making. Yes. I think, I think so. And, and, you know, we, we have this to a degree before or around the time, certainly, of the Iraq and Afghanistan war where, you know, people in, in, uh, in the health service here just didn't understand. So they'd forgotten. No one had read military uh, psychiatric texts. And, you know, there aren't that many doctors now who serve in the military who know much, uh, or at that time, who, who, who have, had become civilians. So, you know, the comparison, say, at the end of the Second World War, the United States had something like 6,000 psychiatrists in uniform. At the beginning of the Second World War, they had two uniformed psychiatrists. So there's a huge a huge boost in knowledge of what what's going on. We need to treat these people. But then uh, come the end of the war, most of those uniformed psychiatrists left. Yeah. So it's just natural, you know. And uh, getting back to what we talked about at the beginning, it's telling that as it stands, the NHS by itself isn't equipped to deal with the psychological problems um, that veterans are presenting with. And well, yes, to a, to a degree. But, you know, the NHS was set up in 1948. And one of the main reasons as to why it was set up is to look after the soldiers coming back from war and people affected in the UK by the bombings. So, 
you know, in a way, it lost its way a bit, and uh, I think that's that's quite a quite a relevant issue. Um, uh, and of course, in this country, we have a definite separation of military health versus the NHS. So, of course, in the last ten to fifteen years, that's becoming blurred, more blurred. In that now, military hospitals have closed. When I joined, we had eight, nine, ten military hospitals across the UK and abroad. Now most of, if, you know, really all those hospitals have closed and the NHS is contracted for beds and there are wings in some NHS hospitals, say for the main specialties. So in the military, your main medical problems are going to be orthopedic because of all the training. They're going to be mental health because of all the accidents and going to war. And it's going to be hearing loss because of all the machines we use and aeroplanes and, and firing of weapons. So those are the three main specialties. Of course, you need anaesthetists as well for intensive care. But are really psychiatry, orthopedics and ENT and, and anaesthesia. Those really are the main specialties. But in my time, um, uh, for example, in Germany and in the UK, we had obstetrics, gynecology. My son was born in a military hospital. We had uniformed obstetrics uh, you know, uh, we had pediatrics, uh, and, uh, you know, we, we had most of uh, pathology, everything was in uniform. We had, we had a good setup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, obviously, some of the lack of ability of the NHS to deal with these issues of PTSD in mm-hmm. veterans is dealt yeah. with by combat stress. Yes, some is. Um, uh, I think if we look at uh, where the NHS has been with PTSD, so in, in the military, what I can say is the Navy learned its lesson after the Falklands War and the hierarchy. So those are officers who are not medical in any way. They signed up to it and, and, and uh, they knew they had a serious problem. And then the Air Force signed up to it after 1991, Gulf War I, and, and the Army kind of a bit later on in the 90s they they realized they recognized it as as an issue but if we look at mental health generally certainly psychology started to take uh, to pay a lot of attention in the late 90s the early 2000s in this country it became kind of part of the curriculum not military ptsd but ptsd mm. but general uh, psychiatry really has lagged behind dramatically i mean uh, ankeella's uh, produced a study in relation to GPs who had patients at the traumatic stress uh, clinic uh, at the Maudsley Hospital. So this was a publication published maybe four or five years ago. And only 3% of GPs were assessed as uh, uh, competent enough to diagnose PTSD. So there's been a lag in terms of the the medical doctor profession has lagged behind. And psychiatry, I think, has lagged behind too because psychiatry in this country really focuses on very difficult risk uh, presentations and psychotic presentations. And, and really, that's, that's where the funding reaches. But there's a big kind of um, uh, problem in that people, uh, certainly who've, who've served in the military, have been to combat, they're likely, if they are ill, they're likely to be quite ill. And of course, because they're men primarily, they're very macho, they find it very difficult to engage in uh, in services that are not uh, run by people who understand the military. So, people so the, with a military background like yourself. Yes, I, and really combat stress did find its role. So in 2007 when I joined, the, the main reason for appointing me as the first full-time doctor ever appointed mm. at combat stress, and we had three respite care homes with very little going on in terms of therapy, uh, and uh, I replaced the doctor who visited... Uh, 
the center here at, at, in Surrey, Tirrit House, half a day a week uh, with a full, I was full time. We had half a doctor in the Midlands, another uh, re- residential center, and no doctor at all up in Scotland. We had so three residential centers, 87 beds. And uh, my remit was to set up cutting edge clinical services, which is what I'd done. I'd left the Air Force 10 years previously. I then worked with adult survivors of abuse for 10 years, setting up services. Uh, and and really, it was starting from scratch. We had no clinical governance. We had no operations director. We had no structures and no programs. So what is cutting-edge treatment for PTSD? Well, cutting-edge uh, is looking at the evidence base. So for military-related um, PTSD, if you go on to the latest NICE guidelines, your trauma-focused therapy ideally should be trauma-focused cognitive behavior therapy. It's uh, superior to EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. But of course, you need to use a phasic model. You need to make sure that people are stable enough to tolerate reliving their worst experiences in a therapeutic uh, rapport. Um, uh, and then you need to be sure that they've got the skills to cope. So so this is kind of uh, the triphasic model was described a few years ago and and what's important about 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 it is that there is quite a big evidence base for using for using this this tactic as it were but look when you have many numbers usually you're going to do quite a lot in groups mm-hmm. so judith herman is the is the psychiatrist who wrote who wrote a book about a triphasic approach uh, for veterans and also for adult survivors of sexual abuse so stabilization, trauma-focused therapy, and rehabilitation. The three phases. The three phases. So uh, when I got here, I inherited 87 beds. I was told the, 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 uh, uh, it was really important to maintain a residential setting at that time. We didn't have community services at all. So I set up a, a six-week rehabilitation program, which was really an offshoot of our RAF program, which had been borrowed by the Australians, I mentioned they had a big problem with their Vietnam veterans. They visited us in the early 90s and imported uh, a lot of our ideas. And and we set up primarily a residential uh, treatment for the illest veterans. And we have uh, various programs now. We're having uh, anger management for people being in combat. We've got uh, preparation for treatment programs, uh, stabilization programs that use uh, dialectic behavior therapy techniques, and then if you're really that ill, you, you might end up on a six-week program uh, as a resident. But if you're not that ill, you might end up now, we have uh, uh, cognitive processing therapy programs that you can run on Skype, so they're very manualized, or as individual trauma-focused therapy in, in the community as well. So there's yeah. lots of different options depending on the Depending the on the need, of, that's yeah, right. Depending yes. on the need. So is any veteran of the British Armed Forces eligible to come to combat stress? Yes. Um, uh, to define a veteran, a British veteran is someone who served for one day in the military. Um, uh, other countries define a veteran in a very different way. Uh, for them, it would be someone who's been deployed to an operational war zone uh, or else who's been deployed to a humanitarian operation. Whereas we are in Britain very inclusive. And to a degree, that's reasonable because we do see veterans who have uh, been traumatized through military training accidents, which in other countries, they wouldn't be entitled to any treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so so we have multidisciplinary teams. We have psychiatrists. Uh, I have about 5.5 full-time equivalent psychiatrists. We've got uh, just under 30 occupational therapists, about 40 uh, therapy and psychology 
staff, and then a collection of nurses, community psychiatric nurses, addictions nurses in the community. Uh, we've done a lot of need studies. Uh, I, I established a research department in 2014 that's linked to the King Center for Military Health Research. Uh, we've published a lot of papers, something like 50 papers in five years. Mm. Um, uh, and so we know the need. So the need, the veterans who present to us, increasingly they're younger, they're coming uh, from the eras of Iraq and Afghanistan. They present with chronic PTSD, depression, and alcohol problems, past and present, with a social slide, lack of support with their family, and maybe half of them at least are unemployed. Uh, and they come to us through our helpline. So there's a 24-7 helpline. We get 17,000 calls a year, which is pretty big. Uh, they, they're then sent to a triage nurse on the phone. Uh, that would be a senior nurse who then reports to a multidisciplinary team in the region. And then people are allocated uh, a treatment pathway. And we have maybe 3,000 veterans in our clinical service at any time. What, what's good now is other players are coming into the field. So the NHS has set up a, a transition and liaison service, as I mentioned before. People join the military, perhaps, because they have poor attachments in their primary family. So when people leave the military, if they have a mental health problem already, that can be a very difficult time. So transition out into a civilian world can be... Yeah, is, is, is difficult, can precipitate a mental health problem um, uh, or else, uh, if you like, can uncover one because, you know, many people in the military don't go sick. They drink alcohol instead. But, of course, alcohol is more expensive in a civilian setting. So when you drink less, your PTSD emerges. So delayed presentations of PTSD and other mental illness are quite common in the first year to 18 months. This was studied by uh, Professor Chris Bruin and his team. Um uh, and uh, so this transition uh, liaison service, in theory, covers the whole of England. So there should be one. You, all you do is Google TILS, and you should be able to get your veteran into an appropriate clinical service in the NHS or else in the third sector. Mm-hmm. We work closely with TILS. And they also set up a, a, a complex treatment service, a CTS service for ongoing psychotherapy that can at least deliver even up to 64 sessions of outpatient treatment, mm-hmm. which is quite a lot really now mm-hmm. for the NHS. Yeah. Do you think it's common for people to be attracted to the military because of these, because of having poor attachments to their family or their surrounding community? Yeah, I think, I think you know, historically the military has always uh, recruited from deprived areas. So it, it's uh, joining the military is a big opportunity. And most people who join the military do extremely well. Um, uh, they normally come out with a trade. Uh, they normally come out with much better confidence. And usually, you know, the vast majority, I don't know, 80, 85% plus, maybe even 95% uh, adjust very well into a civilian life. But, you know, some people don't. Um, uh, our rates, I mean, we, we, if you like, are like the Royal Marsden for PTSD and veterans. And, and, you know, all our clinical audits from 2005 have shown that we get the same kind of population trying to access care. So that's people with, you know, our figures for PTSD, something like 78% primary diagnosis of PTSD with most of them with depression, most of them with alcohol problems past and present. Um, uh, and and many of them have poor attachments. So 52% of those would have had childhood problems, including being either being adopted mm-hmm. or else uh, having uh, physical 
uh, psychological or sexual abuse or all of that combination. So childhood trauma is very common in our population. Um, uh, it's not to say it caused the problem. I mean, we tend not to be able to deliver long-term therapies for adult survivors of abuse. But, you know, if the trauma is primarily military and it's reactivated some of the childhood trauma, we would treat that individual. Yeah. So do you think an early life trauma... Mm-hmm. And someone who subsequently goes on to serve in the military predisposes one to developing a PTSD-like condition? Yes, I th- I think, uh, you know, you you do get, v- you are vulnerable if you've had a childhood trauma. But it doesn't mean you will get PTSD if you serve in a, an infantry regiment that goes into yeah. combat. Yeah. yeah, not necessarily. Yeah. Uh, um, my understanding is you also did some work in forensics in terms of setting up a dbt service yes I, i was lucky enough to be appointed medical director for one of the private hospitals that was partnerships and care at the time um uh, i think now it's uh elysium and uh the priory i think who own uh the conglomeration of what was partnerships and care but when i when i arrived i, I found uh this was a women's hospital there were many incidents ligatures and on all that you know a lot of violence around And I, I took over a ward that, uh, as medical director of the hospital, um, uh, that had a lot of trauma. The history of trauma was really kind of rampant. And so I, I needed, we needed to do trauma focused work with these patients. Uh, I'd run a 90 day complex PTSD rehab program, uh, for about seven years, five, six, seven years. Uh, before going to this job. And uh, I used the three principles, so stabilization, using proper medication, psychoeducation, preparing you for therapy, uh, and then trauma-focused therapy and rehabilitation, so trying to get you kind of functioning. Uh, but with these patients, we needed uh, a DBT program. So I, we we got uh, trainers from Holland to to train quite a lot of staff. I think the first tranche was 30 staff and then many more were trained after that. And the, the rate of kind of uh, uh, incidents on, on my ward, I think I had 10, about 10 patients. It dropped from something like, I don't know, quite a number to maybe two a month, mm-hmm. which was, was, was quite a miracle really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder if you could explain a bit about the DBT model. So for those who don't know, DBT is Dialectical Behavior Therapy which is a therapy devised primarily to treat borderline personality disorder. Yeah. I think, I think you know, DBT is a very interesting model and, you know, it's been adapted as well uh, in the post-traumatic stress disorder world to something called the STAIRS model. So what DBT is about is trying to control people's regulation of their emotions, so emotional regulation, trying to control the way they they think and they feel, so their impulsivity and their relationships with themselves and other people. So essentially, there is a a pre-contemplation kind of phase where people are encouraged to think whether or not they want to engage in, 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 in DBT. And DBT is quite a big commitment because you have to attend, and I, I know I'm trained in DBT, I haven't practiced it for, for some time, but... But you, you have to attend uh, classes at least once a week, and, and that's quite quite serious. And you have to be in contact with your therapist as well, and you give permission to your therapist who's working within a team to consult the team. And uh, there are consequences. So if you, it, it's primarily kind of aimed at reducing self-harm, 
Uh, it's aimed at uh, controlling your emotions and getting you steady. It doesn't aim to treat your underlying trauma or anything like that. Now, people will say, look, people with borderline personality disorder don't have PTSD. Well, it's I, becoming less clear. I think it's, it's, it's less clear. I mean, I've hardly ever met somebody with a borderline personality disorder diagnosis who didn't have a very difficult uh, experience or set of experiences or were exposed to frank trauma in their childhood. And so there's, there's a, a huge overlap. And yeah. there's an increasing school of thought that even mm -hmm. other conditions such as psychosis or depression yes. mm -hmm. um, are linked to trauma, trauma of some kind. And yes. You can almost start to think of them as trauma-like conditions. Yes. I, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the main thing not to forget is certainly when I trained, I had very good teachers in post-traumatic stress or trauma, the trauma world. Uh, Gordon Turnbull I've mentioned, John Rawlins I've mentioned, I mean, we were taught, I was taught that about 50% of your hospitalized psychiatric patient uh, numbers had been traumatized in childhood. And commonly, uh, sexual abuse was fairly rife. So it's really important to take a proper history and to look for trauma. What we're not trained to do as junior psychiatrists, and certainly I wasn't trained other than when I was in the military, is to take a trauma history routinely. We don't do that. And I think if you're going to do psychotherapy, uh, you definitely need to understand the atmosphere in the household, especially when people are growing up, not to insert any kind of false memories. We had all this false memory stuff in the 80s and early 90s, which I think deflected from the importance of taking a proper trauma history. Mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely. Um, well, I'll start to wrap up because I'm conscious of your time, but... Um, I was wondering if there were any books you would recommend to someone who's either a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or even someone just interested in this sphere, books that have impacted your way of thinking. What I think is really important is keeping your knowledge up in the literature. So my advice would be to join the uh, traumatic stress kind of family, which is um, the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, or the ISTSS, this is based in America, um, uh, but actually it's, it's, it's the World Forum for, for Trauma. Um, uh, there's something called the European Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, and that's the ESTSS. I mean, you could join that, it's cheaper, and you'll still get the journals. The Journal of uh, Traumatic Stress has a lot of information. I think that's really, really important. Um, uh, Judith Herman's book is very important. That is uh, 1992. Uh, I think it's it's called Trauma. Uh, she describes the phasic intervention for veterans and for adult survivors of abuse. Sandy Bloom wrote a book uh, called Creating Sanctuary. There's a first version, then she's updated it with a second book. I think the first book is in the 90s. The more recent one is maybe a couple of years ago. That's worth reading as well because that talks about treating trauma within a kind of a therapeutic environment. And that's what we have here at combat stress in our residential centers. We, we have expanded the community dramatically compared to what it was like when I joined. So we did that in 2010. We have a lot of um, uh, clinicians now in the community. But the therapeutic environment is very important, as, as we all know, and, and really is very rare now in general psychiatry in this country to have uh, beds, uh, let alone a therapeutic environment. Great. And uh, lastly, I ask lots of annoying questions. So I always give my guests the opportunity to ask me a question. 
uh, at the end of the interview. Okay, so look, why have you come to interview me in relation to military trauma? Are people really interested these days, do you think? I can't imagine that someone would be in this sphere and not be interested because obviously serving in the military is such an extreme experience which most people are very sheltered from. I think increasingly in, in modern society, people are becoming more and more protected from danger, from real threats, but also from like the real kind of connection you can get in the military, the real kind of experience of solidarity with sort of a soldier by your side, as, as you mentioned. Uh, one word you could use to describe being a soldier or being in combat, it's kind of like hyper-reality. And what we're doing a lot of time at home is we're really shielding ourselves from reality a lot of the time. And so to get an idea of what these kinds of people are experiencing and, and the very, um, like you said, it can be traumatic, but you, it can also be an intense vehicle for growth. Yes, these kinds of experiences and can give you a real perspective on life. I think it's important for people to, to hear about and I, I think yes. they would definitely be interested. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I agree. Can I just say one final anecdote? I mean, I have recommended, uh, when I gave evidence to the Defence Select Committee last April, April 18, that every single college uh, introduces one question on military health um, uh, so that our up-and-coming students, uh, particularly psychiatrists, I think, have a small book to read on military psychiatry. Uh, and and we are a dying breed. Uh, we're in a phase now where people have forgotten the impact of war. But of course, people like me are picking up pe the pieces. The NHS now has set up some services. And it's really important to try and spot these people who need help. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, great. So Dr. Walter Buzatil from Combat Stress, would you like to talk about your website? Yes, we have a, a website. So go on to our Combat Stress website. I guess it's www.combatstress.com. Dot org dot uk. Uh, we have a helpline um, number there. You can refer online as well. Uh, and there's a lot of information. If you click on the research page, we've published something like 50 plus papers in the last five years, I think 21 in the last year. Uh, so it's quite dramatic. And there's a lot to read and a lot to learn. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. You are listening to the Thinking Mind podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd love it if you share it with a friend or you could give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. If you fancy it, you can even buy us a coffee to support the team and the links for that will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening.